I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here for the podcast today in Newport Beach, California, with my colleague and good friend. And I call him my good friend because I've been friends with him for, let's call it 18 years? Just about. 18 years. So, Mr. Sean Latimer, how are you? I'm good. It's Thanks. been a couple of weeks. It's like we've been like crowding you out of uh, joining the podcast. It's it's become a uh, evolving topic where you have lots of people now. Yeah, You're kind of a big deal. Uh, no, Thanks not for squeezing me in. I appreciate you coming. Um, we're going to talk about an article I wrote. Uh, I'm in the midst of writing, if we're going to be honest. Um, called "Great Expectations." So, where does this article come from? If you came to me and you said, "Hey, what is your number one concern as a financial planner?" For kind of the industry, if there's any fractures or cracks or concerns, uh, uh, retirement in America or kind of however you want to articulate it, I would I would say that I'm less worried about the clients that I serve because I'm really blessed to serve clients that have really robust balance sheets. And those balance sheets often dwarf their um, uh, expenses or their lifestyle. So their financial plans are easy. Right there's a lot of room to do extra planning, second vacation homes, and things like that. Um, but if you ask me what my greatest concern is, that I think a lot of folks that plug their details into a financial plan and it comes out that they have a probability of success, um, but it's tight. They're mm-hmm. kind of on the margin. I don't think that those people always understand what the underlying return expectations are in that financial plan. And that concerns me because I don't think ignorance is bliss. Now, I gave a little bit of a lead up to that, and we're going to unpack that. But does that resonate with you? Do you get what I'm saying? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, it does. A couple of things stick out is I think if you asked even professionals in our industry what future returns or expected returns are, you'd get different answers. So it's really hard to create concrete plans based off of that data when it's somewhat of a, an opinion. Yeah, I find myself a lot lately because you, you obviously, when you're talking about uh, projections or forecasts, we're in an industry, you're never going to use the word guaranteed. Mm-hmm. So I, I often find myself saying a reasonable person would expect fill in the blank. And, um, you know, if you read some of the institutional blogs, institutional finance, think pensions, endowments, things like that, there is a lot of uh, criticism to CalPERS and some of their return expectations that they have. And that concerns people because there's a real underlying liability that that has to fulfill, which is somebody's pension. Right. So if you go into um, you know, those portfolios and if the, the management team is assuming, I don't know, plug in the blank, uh, 8% rate of return, is that realistic? Would a reasonable person expect that rate of return based on the design of the portfolio? And sometimes I think that people often don't peel back that next layer. It's true. And one thing you mentioned is a lot of the clients that you work with, there is, uh, I don't want to say room for error, that's the wrong way to say it, but the the balance sheet is large enough compared to expenses that the planning is uh, for a little bit more, uh, for second homes and vacations and things like that, where if people are on the margin and they find themselves even behind the eight ball, they're kind of uh, chasing returns or hoping that things pan out well when there's only a couple levers you can pull in financial planning. We've talked about it before either save more or you invest in something that gives a higher return. Well, if those assumptions are wrong, even by the slightest, the plan won't work. So let's go down that path. So a lot of people that participate in 401k plans or company-sponsored plans, 
let's go back through history. Um, those 401k plans and company-sponsored plans replaced pensions. Um, but pensions gave a lot of clarity because you knew – because one, let's just, just use the actual terms. A pension was a guaranteed benefit while the other one um, is a defined contribution plan, defined benefit versus defined contribution. So at least you knew in the future exactly what your paycheck is going to be. Now you have this responsibility, which seems really murky, is how do you convert this large number, this nest egg, into future income? So what ends up happening is, and again, I'm working on kind of the the main lane that people drive in. Um, They participate in a company-sponsored plan. They sign up for the target date fund. And then they use the internal software to say, hey, where's the thermometer at? Am I highly likelihood to be retired at 62? And they don't look much further than that. I don't blame them for that, Mm -hmm. but I see a lot of broken pieces in that structure. Yeah. And and like you said, the the 401k originally wasn't designed to replace the pension. It was supposed to uh, be an addition to. And so now, instead of having a fixed income stream from a pension, you're right. You're supposed to create this nest egg by having it invested based off of your risk tolerance and time horizon, and then be able to extract value from that for a long period of time. A, l- a while ago, you would end up working much longer than you were going to be in retirement. Now, those time frames could be very similar. Maybe you work for 30 or 40 years and you retire for 30 or 40 years. That's a lot of time to fill. Isn't that so huge? I- I'm glad you hit on that because I-, I didn't really touch on the article, but um, that if the average age of retirement was 65, and the average life expectancy was, I don't know, 77, mm-hmm. um, you're only planning for 12 years. Now, uh, you know, we're a little bit arrogant. Uh, you know, I want to retire at 55. Yeah. And people are living until 95. It's like, sheesh, like a half of your life, you're not working. So whatever that nest egg has been built up, um, it has to last you a long time. And it's not intuitive on how you do that forecasting in your brain with a, 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 some quick arithmetic. Yeah, no, it's true. It would be hard to imagine too, and, and this might segue into the, the more meat of the conversation, but especially when you look at years where the returns are higher, it's pretty easy to say, oh, wow, my portfolio went up this much. I would only spend a portion of that this year on retirement expenses. I could probably retire now. And I think that sometimes it's a, it, it kind of fakes them out to think that they're ahead of the game when they're not. Yeah, I introduced the article with that old service adage, under promise and over deliver, mm-hmm. and kind of the, this idea of just expectations. Why do you want to under promise and over deliver? Because so much of happiness and contentment is hinged to what did you expect the outcome to be? So if you're going to go to lunch and order this chicken sandwich, what's your expectation? That's it. it tastes like it did last time, right? Yeah. This idea of consistency. Um, what is the opposite? What if somebody uh, over promises and under delivers? How does that make somebody feel? It's not good. It's frustrating. It's it's horrible. So the problem is, is that we build so much of our expectations on what we've recently experienced. Uh, behavioral economists often call this recency bias. They mm. reference it a lot. So I went through some stock market returns using the S&P 500 just as a reference point. Um, and this is where we'll kind of take the discussion. Um, over the last 12 months, which obviously I'm cheating, right? Because yeah. 12 months would have put us in kind of that still that COVID moment and still kind of climbing out of uh, a drawdown. But the last 12 months, the return was 33.5%. The last 10 years annualized was 16.5%. Um, and then the last, uh, what did I grab here, 100 years was 10.85% annualized returns, dividends reinvesting. Um, wow. If you anchor your expectations there and you place that into your financial plan, it's probably going to pencil. And this is where I want to 
talk stocks, bonds, alternatives, cash, expectations, all that stuff. I'm going to tell you on the podcast right now, I do not have the crystal ball, but I don't think returns over the last 12 months, over the last um, 10 years, or over the last 100 years are a good place to anchor your expectations for your financial plan if you retire today. No, I hear those numbers and it, it makes me nervous for people because um, we've talked about this before, but anytime you think investing is easy or retirement planning is easy and you use average returns, it's not linear and, and it, there is decision making to be made during really tough times. And uh, it, it just makes me nervous for someone who isn't getting help. Yeah. And when I use that statement, a reasonable person would expect fill in the blank. I'm doing that on purpose because I want to ask, uh, you know, somebody across the table, what would a reasonable person expect stock market returns to be? Most people are going to anchor on what they've seen and what they've experienced. Mm -hmm. I want to teach you a different way. The current valuation, yeah, big finance word, valuation, whatever, they're just the current price. For, for every dollar you pay in stock prices, how many dollars in earnings does a, a company make in profits? That's a, an easy way to anchor on what is it today versus historical. So uh, we call those P.E. ratios. Again, I'm not trying to lose you with terminology, but um, historically, uh, for something like the S&P 500, an investor is going to pay somewhere around $17 in a stock price, on average, for every dollar of profits that company creates. So now, if on a look-forward basis, what if it's $22 for every dollar? Uh, it doesn't seem like a big change going from 17 to 22 right? But when you think of like percentage change and proportion, um, there's a jump there. And if you've, if you've lost me on any of that, this is the most important part I want to say. If you're paying more dollars today for a dollar of profits than you historically have, then your expected return in the future is lower. Yeah. And if we want to make that really, really simple, if you were paying $25 for a dollar of profits, 25 over 1, inverse it 1 over 25, same as saying 4%. So now you're saying, hey, I'm going to get 4% and the dividend is maybe 1.5%. I'm going to get a 5.5% return minus all costs. Well, that looks a whole lot different than compounding at 16% over the last 10 years. That scares me. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned it earlier, but the last 10, 11 years have been very friendly markets. And uh, I don't think the next 11 are going to look the same. And when people are making lifelong decisions about how they're invested or what they're contributing or what they're going to be spending in retirement, uh, those things don't always match up. And the part that's hard for me is that we're always or often we're going to lean on software to kind of help us do these forecasts, right? Because it is not easy to do back of the napkin or in my head math when I'm talking about 30 or 40 years with factors of inflation mm -hmm. and taxes and yep. rates of return. And we've talked about this podcast before, but you go to, let's take the the three top financial planning software. You go look them up, whatever. You peel back the curtain and you look at what are their rates of return assumptions. They're aggressive. Those yep. stock returns on the default rate of return for most of these planning software is north of 10%. And again, uh, if you're listening to this and, and, and you're maybe inside the industry and you're like, oh, Trevor, that's not true. You know, this one is nine and a half percent. Oh, that's great. I, I still think that is aggressive. Um, a reasonable person should probably be anchoring their expectations 
25 or 30% lower. And when we're talking about something compounding over a retirement of 25 or 30 years, let me tell you, that brings you to a very different destination. Mm -hmm. So if you're leaning on probability of success with figures that are these great expectations, um, that concerns me. And I'm not trying to be doom and gloom, but uh, I I just think that is an an, an infection across the industry that I see pretty regularly. I don't even know if that's the the biggest difference, though, uh, or the most glaring stat that would be off on the planning because most people are going to be in stocks. And if they're getting, let's say they're realistically getting seven or eight instead of 10, you know, yes, that is going to have an impact. I think the bigger impact is going to be on the cash and fixed income where if some of those defaults, I mean, you were telling me before this uh, podcast, some of them are really high, right? Yeah, we we peeled back the curtain um, on the... Now, again, at the Bonsi Group, we customize those rate of return expectations and we, you know, recalibrate them to what we think is realistic. But the default on cash, I I think when I looked at it, I'm doing this from memory, but I'm going to be pretty close. I think it was 3.5%. And for listeners, cash does not pay 3.5%. I know. I was thinking when I saw it, I was like, man, tell me where I can open that bank account because that feels like free money when... You know, the 10-year treasury uh, oscillates somewhere around 1.5%. Yeah. So that's my point, though. If you have a lot of people that earmark cash or maybe they are in a balanced portfolio or a target date fund or something like that that's incorporating 20, 30, 40% fixed income, that's a big difference if the assumptions are way off. Yeah. And if we go back to this idea of under-promise and over-deliver, what happens if – let me ask you this. What happens if you go into the software – and you make the assumed rates of return lower than they actually are. You're gonna, it's going to compound at a lower rate. You have less at the point of retirement. And the odds are the plan won't be successful. Yes. But also the, the other side of that, which you're exactly right. But um, if things end up being better than what you put in there. Oh, then under promise over deliver. Yeah, it's gravy yeah. train. You're, you're, yeah. you're stoked. So um, where is your starting point? You know, we'd have to get in a deeper conversation. But maybe you put cash at zero. Mm-hmm. Maybe you put stocks at seven percent. Maybe you put um, your your bonds or your fixed income at two percent. That is so dramatically different than what we see as the the current default. And if I go back to that that statement, I'm I'm classically using. Um, what would a reasonable person expect? Just a, a vanilla fixed income bond portfolio to return? They would expect and I'm, I'm anchoring this in, in, in research and study and empirical evidence, they would expect that the return over the next decade or so, if, if that's kind of the duration of the portfolio, would be the yield. Mm-hmm. So if you buy a fixed income portfolio and the, the, the actual yield to maturity um, is somewhere in the range of 2%, don't go plug into your financial plan 4.5% yeah. because that's what the last 100 years look like. Right. Um, we're not in the last 100 years. We're in 2021. Right. And if interest rates do move or look different and cash and bonds pay more, great. Now, once people get to this conclusion and maybe like the general landscapes like, uh oh, you know, stocks are a little bit higher on the valuation, interest rates are are low, um, uh, cash doesn't do what it used to, fixed income didn't do what it used to. um, Maybe the other scary part is then there becomes this kind of robust catch-all category alternatives where people get to pitch some pretty wild, amazing, and crazy things uh, to kind of uh, show people how they're going to solve for this equation that seems difficult. That's true. And uh, I think people just need to understand what they're owning and 
you I, I might be taking the wind out of your sails, but you do get a premium for owning some of those alternatives because they are private investments and you have a lack of liquidity. But um, just make sure that you do understand it well because there's a lot of complex, sexy ideas out there that are less common and uh, th- there's probably a reason you've never heard of it. Yeah, I just think um, you're right on that liquidity side that um, there can be a premium to be had when there's this uh, illiquidity that exists. Um, and we've touched on that other times, so I'm not going to dive in there right now. But um, I'm more scared about the clarity. Um, yeah. I have people that come to me that, um, you know, everything from, uh, you know, do I want to be a micro investor in these uh, antique or uh, vintages of, of bottled wine? Or do I want to be a co-owner on kind of these classic cars uh, or farmland or, or things of that nature? And I'm not anti those things, but I just think that they're going to be so easy of their sexy pitch appeal. Um, and if you don't do your due diligence, um, you might create a worse outcome than you would have if mm-hmm. you own some of those traditional investments. That's true. And some of them are created as a, as a potential hedge or there's a narrative behind the story of, of what type of atmosphere you'd have to be in for it to be successful. But that doesn't mean that's going to happen. It's someone's opinion that they're selling you that narrative and you find yourself on the wrong side of a trade. And not only did it not hedge or protect you, it actually blew up. So, Yeah, and maybe that's the question to ask. Um, you're presenting this XYZ investment to add to your portfolio. Let me ask you this. What would a reasonable person expect the rate of return on that asset to be over the next decade? And when I say reasonable... I don't want to hear the glamour pitch. Mm-hmm. I want you to show me the math. Like, what is the, what is the, the, the historical uh, precedence for this? Like, where does this come from? How do you reasonably get to this conclusion? That's so true. And then especially uh, more exotic investments, you hear, well, it's only been doing this or it has been doing that. But if you, if you get one that pops or so, I hear term- terminology like that, and it kind of makes me chuckle. Like, yeah, if you found a tech stock that no one's ever heard of and it turns into Tesla, like, probably going to go up, you know, but odds of that are pretty low. Yeah, I'm going to butcher the quote, but I feel like there's something that Warren Buffett has a um, a natural tendency to say of something of the nature that uh, nobody likes to get rich slowly. Yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, it, it reminded me of, um, it's a sports analogy, but we do like sports, so it might work out. But uh, they were talking about uh, like a quarterback carousel on a team. And they're like, uh, the Jets are not going to use their starting first round pick. They might use this other guy. Because he might be really good. And the, one of the commentators made a good point. He goes, you know, it's pretty rare for someone to be like Kurt Warner, where they're out of the league, bagging groceries, working at a grocery store, and then they come back and they're a Super Bowl MVP. No one saw it coming. It's so rare they're making a movie about it. Like, it's that rare. So to think that it's just going to happen all the time, it's kind of a fool's errand. And it, yeah, I feel like it, it reminds me of investing a lot. Yeah, I, it's so funny that you mention that because I often will ask people, like, when they go down that path, and I'm being absolutely honest, right? So is that the exception or is that the rule? Right. Does that happen most of the time? Or have you kind of cherry picked this one scenario when this event played out this way? Yeah. And it probably ties into, and it's a throwback of one of our episodes, but it's FOMO, fear of missing out. They think of that one time that they didn't invest in that one investment that blew up and did really well. And they go, oh, I'm not going to miss out again. This is the one. So on this podcast already, we've um, basically dialed down expectations on rates of return, right? We took the default setting for a financial plan and we took stocks down, you know, 30% less than what the expected return was. We throttled cash down to zero and, you know, uh, recalibrated bonds. 
Um, with that said, there's two different types of investors. I'm just going to bifurcate. There's um, accumulators, people that are still accumulating wealth, waiting till they're going to be in the future, what I'll call distributors, right? They're going to mm. be distributing that wealth. Um, I didn't really like pre-plan this with you or give you kind of any feedback on, on, on this question. Um, I have my answer, but based on that, based on that we are resetting expectations on rates of returns, what is your advice to accumulators? And I'm going to ask you the same thing for distributors. Yeah, so I think as that conversation comes up, um, I, I make it clear that stocks aren't going to return 10%. It's probably closer to 7 4% in income, 3% appreciation, and you're reinvesting those share into more shares during good times and bad times, it'll compound. We're going to build the allocation based off of your balance sheet and your expenses, not based off of a 60-40 portfolio. So you're probably not going to incorporate a lot of fixed income, which is good, or a lot of cash. But we do have to be mindful about what you fill the rest of those gaps up with. And if it's alternatives that have a higher return profile because there's a lack of liquidity and it's a long-term investment, maybe that'll help that compounding growth number. But it really depends on the person. Yeah, so you're kind of the advice to accumulators is that you're going to be intentional on the collaboration of the design of the portfolio and setting expectations around this part of the pizza pie is going to give this sort of expected, a reasonable person would think that it gives this return. And then we're going to incorporate some of these things, alternatives and illiquids to generate a little bit more juice in the portfolio. But this is what we kind of expect. So a lot of what you're doing is um, – giving clarity on what somebody would think is going to be the outcome. Yeah, I, I think I bring up the rule of 72 a lot. I say, hey, over 10 years, if you average a 7.2% return, this amount will double. And I think if I if I make that as the base case, this is what we're hoping for, as long as you're owning risk assets. If you're owning bonds or cash, that won't happen. Yeah. But if I make that the base case, and if it's better, great. If it's higher than that, fantastic. But I'd rather create a very clear picture of this is what it would probably look like. You know, it's, I love that you say that. Because the rule of 72, if you don't know what we're saying, just Google search it. You can find it on Investopedia. You'll get an answer real quick. But the rule of 72 is like something you learn in like finance 101, yeah. day one. I use it every day. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. It's like the easiest thing to just say like, hey, here's, um, it goes back to that Warren Buffett quote too. Like, does 10 years sound like a long time to double? Uh, well, you know, nobody wants to get rich slow. Yeah, it's um, true. What I'm telling accumulators, um, whether it's friends from church or a son and daughter of, of you know somebody that's starting to invest or whatever, I'm telling them two words, oversave. Hmm. You are going to plan to save this much, oversave, because so much of people's uh, recency bias and anchoring and all that anchors on higher rates of return. How you solve for that? Save more. Yeah. If you were going to save 10% per year, you got to save 12%. If you were going to save 12%, maybe save 15% oversaving solves a lot of financial planning problems. That's true. And you, you might be thinking, listening to this, like, well, but then you're living without now. There's probably balance there. Yeah. And, and what you the advice you were giving to the accumulators, I'll start with distributors and then I'll give the, the baton back to you. But I'm, I'm actually giving that advice to distributors is, um, gosh, on a podcast, it's so hard to articulate this. So uh, you can give me grace on, on, on how you hear this and <laughs> Please email me if you have questions, but I think those two words for the distributor, it's more risk, right? Um, it, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you can buy certificates of deposit and mm -hmm. get get meaningful interest rates. You can't today. Nope. Um, so whether you want to blame the government or the Federal Reserve or however you want to do it, the landscape, uh, the, the playing field has changed. So I do think the the... The risk management, the design of a portfolio 
how much what you're calling risk assets or equities actually show up in a retiree's portfolio, I think they are higher today than they traditionally have been. Um, and, uh, you know, the founder of our company just wrote a book saying that there's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, this is the same thing. Uh, I think that distributors are going to have to accept more volatility. The, the thing that scares me about that is if you're an accumulator and you go through a 2008 or tech bubble or the COVID moment of, of last year, you can make a mistake. You can yeah. sell everything, go to cash, learn your lesson, you know, uh, take your licks, and then oversave, make up for that gap. If you start doing that in retirement, it can be detrimental. Like, did anybody ever think like 10 years into retirement, I'm going to pivot and go back to work because, um, you know, I made a, you know, a, a pretty horrible mistake in financial planning. And um, during one of those crisis moments, decided I wanted to sell all my stuff while it was on a, a deep discount. Um, yeah, my advice to accumulators is oversave. And my advice to distributors is you, you, you're probably going to have to accept more volatility. And I think if you design the portfolio with the, the goal of generating a certain amount of income and kind of sticking to that number, it makes it much smoother, much easier to kind of ride those up and ups and downs, especially if they're just taking the income and leaving the principal. But you're right, it's still an uncomfortable conversation if $2 million turns into $1.2 million, And you have to explain that. Yeah, I think the job of the advisor becomes so much around the framing, right? Because um, this big lump sum of wealth, when we're talking about it in in terms of millions of dollars, right? Think about how many zeros that is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that's just mushy. And it, it's hard to make sense of. So what you have to do as an advisor a lot of the time is how do you reframe that? And what you're talking about is you reframe it around how much income does this mushy thing produce? Yeah. And that's one number to anchor towards. And then with this mushy number, um, how much are we going to set aside in like a reserve tank so that if things feel Armageddon-esque, you have, you know, um, some level of confidence that, you know, three or four years is, is set aside for a moment just like this. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when you create that framing and the lessons and, and telling somebody how the path is going to behave, I find myself all the time telling people like, you know, this is what where we are today, but, you know, on your investing journey, uh, your investments are going to misbehave all the time. And even just that word misbehave, yeah. it's just like, ah, they're going to frustrate us. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to get them back in line. Um, so those little micro framing moments, I, I really think equip people to accept the advice I was giving to uh, distributors that more volatility. Um, that's your, your, your two-word advice that is probably going to be applicable to most savers. I have nothing to add. That was spot on. And I, and I feel the same way. I, I think if you set expectations, you make it very clear. And I almost make a joke that I want you to remember this conversation when things feel very scary and you want to call me and make tons of changes because I'm going to tell you no. So I want to remember this. And they always kind of chuckle or laugh. It's true, though. Like, things are friendly right now. Things are great. Everyone's happy. Every phone call, every conversation, people are happy right now. I don't know when, no crystal ball, but I think the next 10 years may be a little bumpier. Yeah, and I think me and you probably have a similar vantage point, is that when everything sounds rosy, like we look to the left, we like, look oh to no. the right, and we're this, like, this is it. <laughs> all right, buckle up, let's put all the harnesses on, because <laughs> yeah. um, this is uh, sometimes when things get bumpy. And um, it, when we say bumpy, it, it doesn't mean that like 
you know, a portfolio needs to be redesigned or uh, things are going to change. It just means that when um, people get complacent, um, markets usually remind you that they're markets. Yeah. So kind of the takeaways from today were, uh, or what I was really trying to get across in the article is, um, you know, if your average investor is going to be in a target date fund that, uh, you know, at retirement has a heavy allocation to fixed income and um, they haven't anchored what those rates of returns are and those risk assets rates of return are, um, they need to look under the hood of their financial plan and see what those assumptions are. Looking at just one thermometer or a dial that shows you probabilities of success is is not enough. And um, it's unfortunate that our industry doesn't have a tendency to anchor towards evaluations as a um, form of future rates of return. And it's more of just like recent history, mm-hmm. um, which uh, we know that past is not prologue. So um, that's our advice. Uh, hopefully it wasn't doom and gloom. It's more of what should a reasonable person expect. Um, and that's what we're here for. That's what we're looking to give advice on. So not much to be said on this, more to be said on this topic. So we will ask you to rate the podcast, to leave comments. Um, you can email us at tom at com. You can address that email to Trevor or Sean or anybody else from one of our past podcasts. We're happy to discuss the items that you are interested in, answer any questions that you have. And then, of course, we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts, Thoughts on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.